0: This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.
1: Hello and welcome to this second of two special editions of Talking TV, where we select our favourite interviews from the past couple of years on the podcast. Today we'll hear from Nicola Lloyd on making first dates for Channel 4, writer Tony Jordan on bringing Dickens to BBC One, Sean Kelly unlocks the secrets of Storage Hunters UK on Dave, and Teresa Watkins talks fixed rigs on the secret life of four, five and six-year-olds. Kick back on the sun lounger and grab another mojito. We're in for another hour of top-telling treats. Valentine's Day may have been and gone, but love is still very much in the air here on Talking TV as we prepare to open the doors to first dates. Uh, Channel 4's dating show may be more than four series old, but it is still attracting new suitors all the time. The 2020 format pulled in record ratings around Valentine's, and now there's more series and further celeb specials in the offing. Executive producer Nicola Lloyd will be with us in a moment to talk about First Dates' charm, but first a clip. Mickey is looking for love, but has she found it in Arnie? Do you, ever, do you ever go out king's road
0: constantly yeah i used to be always at raffles and jacks yes. and Bluebird. Yes.
2: i've gone out with people who aren't from the same background as me it was definitely difficult and there was a lot of problems you know it's simple as where to go out where to go for dinner you can either go to nando's or you can go to nobu it's a, it's a it's a big jump there's a big leap
3: <laughs> we will have
1: past
4: you think we have? 100%. 100%. I'm so,
1: sure you don't remember walking past this really looking guy <laughs> thinking,
2: <"Whoa." laughs> I don't think so. <laughs>
1: so we have Nicola Lloyd, uh, executive producer of First Dates. Uh, so you're in the cut and thrust of Uh, Series 4. How's it going?
4: (laughs) Yeah, really good. We're just coming to the end of it, to be honest. And we've had um, 16 episodes that went out just before Christmas. I think it started in September, culminated in the Christmas special, where we had an engagement, which we were very proud of. Then we had five episodes that went out in January and um, culminated in the Valentine special that went out recently. And then we've got another six episodes up our sleeve, which will probably, at the moment, looks like they're going out in April.
1: Talk us through the editing process. It sounds like quite a complex and heavy working schedule.
4: I think they call it the American format of editing. But we have about 10 edit suites going. So as soon as we finish the rig and we do the running orders for the episodes. So we plan pretty much the next sort of 20 episodes and then we go in order and they go into individual story suites there's a normal edit team in there that that cut a story and I I imagine it's about 12 to 15 minutes a first rough cut so we've got 10 suites cutting stories for for a couple of weeks we sort of bank up as many as possible Uh, and then we start the stitch which is by far the probably the toughest role what's the the, stitch the the stitch is where um, bring it all together they bring it all together so our lead editor and our senior producer sit in there and um, they've got two weeks to cut a show so if you imagine that we've got a bank of stories and they've kind of they've got as big as possible and then we go right okay stitch starts and they've got two, every two weeks we're turning over an episode and we've got two stitch weeks going. So sort of every week we're signing off an episode basically when when we get, you That's know. a lot of
1: viewing, isn't
4: it? It's a lot of viewings, yeah. For me in particular and the series producer and series editor. I mean, at some points we're in five to ten viewings a day and then all the final post starts. We do try to cut quite close to transmission. So sort of the nature of the show is that people are going on first dates and the, Update cards at the end. I think are what everybody's kind of holding, you know, holding out for. So the closer that we put that episode out, um, you know, as close to as as close to filming as possible, then the better the update card is. If you get to the point where you know a story that you actually shot in August isn't going out until Christmas, then it's quite unlikely they're still together. So then we have to get quite colourful. And creative with our update cards. The update <laughs> yeah. cards
1: are always a little elusive, though, aren't they? I know. And do you do that on purpose, just to uh, leave a bit of room for people to you know, yeah. interpret what's going on?
4: I think so. I mean, there's a, it's a combination of factors. I mean, one is just the, the timing. Like you know, they went on <clears throat> a date sometimes two months ago, and they might have gone for another drink or another couple of drinks. But by the time we're transmitting, they're, they're not seeing each it's other anymore. It's fizzled out. And actually, somebody's seeing someone else, and they don't want it to. Be, you know, they don't want to say they went. On on a second date so sometimes we can say uh, you know it's brilliant and they went on you know and then and they're more than happy for us to say what happened next uh and on other occasions they're not so that's when we have to become a little bit more creative with the endings
1: so i'm all right in saying you film 24 episodes in about 12 days yes and then so you've done that when did you do that for series four which we're in so now
4: for series four which was our biggest commission Because previously to that, Series 3 was 12 episodes. So it was doubled. And that was the first time we'd done so many. So we configured the schedule in blocks of eight. So we filmed uh, eight episodes. We cast for eight episodes, filmed it. Five weeks later, filmed the next eight episodes. Five weeks later, filmed the next eight episodes. I think for us, it just felt more contained then. We could have sort of more control over what we were looking for.
1: And the ones you're editing now are are the final batch, are they? Yes,
4: yeah, the final batch. In fact, some of the ones we're editing now were filmed back in August. You know, some some in September and some in October. Um, How does that
1: work in terms of if, if people are making cultural references?
4: If a date's really strong and they're talking about something really current, they're likely to go in one of the, the first episodes that we cut because of the fact that it's current. And that's great for us. I mean, we absolutely love it when we get that kind of stuff. But most of the time, conversations are timeless, really, that they have and they can kind of go anywhere. And, you know, I have to say in an ideal world, we if we had, you know, more money and more time, we'd film every single episode as if it was an individual episode in the restaurant. So there could be a lot more interaction between dates because of the nature of it. We've got a formula to how we put an episode together. And um, within that, we include dates that have chemistry that are like young and quite sexy and flirty. There'll be um, an older date. We refer to it as a golden oldie. There'd be a slightly textured date, which is, you know, maybe um, someone a bit geeky or unusual or with quirky hobbies. And then a date we refer to as Last Chance Saloon, which is actually our sort of favourite, which is someone in their sort of late 30s that is like, you know, still looking for the husband or the wife and, you know, wanting to have children. And that combination of those sort of five... Categories. There's more categories, but we try and make an, an episode with those in.
1: So broadly speaking, every episode will have some of those elements.
4: Yes. So. Yeah. We wouldn't have an episode with six chemistry dates or or five golden oldies. You know, it wouldn't work. But because of the, the way that the logistics dominate the schedule, when we're booking people in for their dates, we, we can't, you know, we can't get the, the mix and the formula perfect. So we might have six chemistry dates in a row on the rig and that's why we have to move them into different episodes. So for me, ideally, you know, we would be able to film an episode and um, edit an episode so that you've got that interaction, you've got the staff moments and Fred linking everything together. I I would say the biggest challenge for us is making sure that we're getting staff actuality uh, moments with fred moments with sam and Cece that speak to the themes that are going on within those dates so when we cut it together it feels like you know it, it's all happening in one day and um, what's it
1: like when you're filming are you are you trying to keep tabs on things that are Going well and identify some of those stories as early as possible.
4: Yes. So the way we structure it, we have seven PDs that follow the dates on the rig, and they do two dates a day. So in total, we're filming fourteen dates a day, Uh, and they sit on the front row in the gallery, and um, and they are just totally ensconced in their own dates in their own world. And then I (laughs) that must be quite (laughs) odd, just
1: watching two people have dinner and peering in. (laughs) Do you know what I've
4: seen so many dates now? I I I I haven't actually added. I must have seen over three hundred dates. So, you sort of two. lose that
1: sense of voyeurism after a while.
4: I absolutely love it. I'm so nosy. I'm so addicted to chemistry and watching people get on that it's. it's, it's you must have
1: good dating tips.
4: It's amazing. Yeah, I do. I do. I mean, literally, if I, if I could put an in earpiece in someone's ear, I could tell them exactly how to nail that
1: date. Can we have a couple?
4: Uh, what of the dating tips? Yeah. Um, listen. I think that's one of the biggest the biggest tips. What people do is uh, when they're nervous, they come in with a sort of an agenda, or they or they talk, and they and they you can see the the person opposite them closing down. And you think if you just stopped or just asked this question, you, you know, I know that you've got so much in common because there's a reason why we matched you. But luckily, we do we do a little bit of matchmaking from behind the scenes. We can our, our trick, I suppose, is the um, producer mic check when we feel like. Somebody's been a bit nervous, or they're not, or they're not, you know, di- divulging the information that we know that they've, you know, they should be telling them. Well, that's why we've matched them. We call them out for a mic check, and um, the producer, the PD, you know, has a little word with them and sort of says, "Oh, you nice. know, whilst you're here, it's going great, <laughs> but why don't you talk about it? Why do you think about these things? <laughs> why do you think about these things?" And um, we do that quite a lot. Um, just so to to make just sure. a
1: little subtle production technique. Yeah, it's a, it's
4: our producing technique because you know, as, as much as. It is great to watch two people sit down and have a date. And sometimes you don't need to get involved, which is amazing. But quite often you do need to steer the story because you've matched them for a reason. And um, and we're always looking for, and it's during the main course, we're always looking for that moment when they both connect over. It could be um, something emotional, or something um, a, a loss that they've both been through or um, they're both huge fans of, you know... Robbie Williams or you know that could be anything but there's always that moment that we need to get and uh, if they don't get it themselves and you know, we give them a little bit of encouragement
1: yeah so. and you wrote in broadcast um, mm. a couple of weeks ago that people mm. are now treating you like a sort of bonafide dating service
4: yes and that is a huge responsibility for us actually because I mean we are a dating agency and um, you know since it started in series one which I wasn't involved in they, they had interactive dating, so you could... The model was slightly different then, um, but you could call in and ask to date the person that you've just been watching that night, and then the next week you're there in the restaurant. And so it's obviously changed since then. But I would say since Series 3, when we did 12 episodes and we had quite a few matches, the trend of Tinder and dating apps started to change. Um, people... We're writing in saying, I really, really want to go on a, on a blind date. You know, I'm so sick of dating apps. I'm so sick of the current dating world. It's quite cold and it's quite difficult to meet people. And they'd watch our programme and see that you were going on a blind date. It's quite old-fashioned. You're going to go and sit down and have a meal. It just really appeals to people. We've got nearly 80,000 applications in our database. Oh, my God. I know, it's unheard of. On, on any other programme, I've never... I, I, you know, I mean, it's a joy to have so many applications, and that's since April.
1: That must be so. tough when you're casting, though, to, to mm. narrow that down to a list yeah. of people that you feel will be good for the show.
4: Well, that's the skill of the casting team, really. We do do targeted casting, but really... What our team is looking for is is to have that skill to be able to, you know, weedle out the the people that they want to put on the series. We've got about six researchers and four APs just on the casting team, a producer and a senior casting producer. And between them, they go through that casting database with a fine tooth comb and um, they see about 80 people every weekend. Uh, and then from there we put through about fifty, so our numbers are really high because of course we. Can- so it's
1: not easy to get a date on first dates. <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually
4: not. But you know, and it's a shame because you know we do. We want people to continue to you know to apply, but um, it's all getting to a point now. Where people are like, I've I applied, and I've not heard back, and it's like because we've got so many to go through, you know. We and also we're constantly looking. We're looking to tell new stories. We've had loads and loads of dates, and each. Dates and each match that we put together we want them to get we want them to fancy each other we want them to have a chance of finding love we also want to tell a story it it could be you know a couple from up north from yorkshire that never really come to london before and you know uh, are quite excited to be in a fancy restaurant and and that just in itself is just a really interesting dynamic to watch and then you might cut that against you know a city boy and a and a career girl who you know have five six dates a day a week um and and for me when you get to the stitch and you and you start you know knitting the episode together the intercut of of these different stories and these different places in Britain and um, these different diverse groups and ages and sexuality that's what makes it really special. I think. That's really what brings the show
1: to life. Yeah, and I think so, uh, so uh, it's obviously become a bit of a brand now, and you're doing lots of other things. Yeah. Do you talk me through some of the? Uh, some of the other work yeah. you're doing here in the UK and and abroad.
4: Yeah, it's a global brand now because it's been sold in it's ten countries at the moment. Spain is the latest; they've just um, commissioned sixty four episodes, which is a lot. Just Good a luck, smaller, Spain. Just a
1: small <laughs> little order there. I
4: know it's huge. Canada's going in for a second series. Um, you were involved in the US. Uh, I was involved in the US, US one. Yeah, I, I went over there in May and I spent um, about four months making. Their series with NBC. When um, does that TX? It should be TX in quite soon. On NBC. On NBC.
1: Is it very different?
4: Well, no, because I went, so I made it exactly the same. <laughs> you I just mean, took that formula. Yeah, I took the formula. It's different in all the different countries around the world. Some have, some have made it a half-hour show. Some have cast the staff. Not all of them inter- use interviews from the staff. I think that's very much a British thing that we do. The challenge about doing something like that in America is because it's so huge, the country is so huge, that you can't just open the network of of casting to the whole of the country you've got to pick a couple of states so we we picked about seven different states and cast within those so we could still match two people from Nashville and two people from Seattle and two people from New York it was really important that we did that because it you know you're not going to have a chance of going on a second date if you're on different sides of the country <laughs> yeah. in America so um yeah so that was really good and then over here in the UK we're doing um our new series of 24 episodes series 5
1: series 5
4: Although I imagine if you're watching it on the telly, it'd probably be Series 7 because we've done, you know, they're in a split run all the time. But yeah, People for us, get
1: confused. The yeah, listings mags are getting confused. We get confused <laughs> as well.
4: Four of those episodes are celebrity episodes. So we're doing a celebrity series. Which, which
1: garnered you some of your highest ratings, didn't it? When, yes. When you did that last year. Yeah, it
4: did. It was Stand Up for Cancer. It went out on a Friday night at nine o'clock, which we love because I, I, you know, I've always felt that it was a Friday night show. And nine o'clock is just you know more people are awake. It did really well and based on the success of that, the the channel have commissioned another series. I think what all of us are quite surprised about in the celebrity version was it just felt like normal real, vulnerable people telling their stories and in actual fact, it didn't matter really who the celebrity was as long as they had an interesting story and if the story's interesting, then it's then it's a great episode. So that's what we're um, we're aiming for. We're doing four episodes at the minute and we've we've got probably about ten celebrities booked already. <laughs>
1: What would happen if you draw together some of Charles Dickens's iconic characters in one world? Uh, that's the question BBC One drama Dickensian answered in 2015 when it was part of BBC One's Christmas schedule. Created and written by Red Planet Pictures boss Tony Jordan, the 20-part series reimagines literary giants including Fagin and Scrooge for the soap-loving generation. Jordan believes it is one of the most ambitious and rewarding projects he has ever attempted, and I caught up with the former EastEnders writer at MIPCOM in October.
3: Uh, just a small warning, uh, Tony's language does get a little fruity at times. There's a reason why people all over the world know the character of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's actually, you know, it's just become a frame of reference now and that's fascinating so to take that, that character and then to take another character someone like Fagin that again everybody knows the character Fagin and the one thing that Charles Dickens never did ever was to ever write a scene or to write anything with those two characters in the same place and I get to write a scene with Scrooge and Fagin in the Three Cripples pub from Oliver Twist now, that's pretty cool. So, and I remember having that thought, and it, it was literally one of those writer's thoughts, which was, what if? You know, what if you did that? How how weird would that be? Well, but would that work, and how would that work? And I remember having that, that thought process started probably over a weekend or something, or, or towards the end of a week, and me discounting it, because I thought, oh, of course someone would have done that, and so therefore it's not new and original, and I per- perhaps shouldn't be getting this excited about it. And I ignored it for about a week later. Someone said to me, um... Oh, I, I talked to someone else about it, and I said, "But someone's done it, obviously." So it's a bit. And they said, "Well, I've never seen it. If they have, so we did a bit of research, and no, no, no one had ever taken those amazing characters and done their own thing with them." So yeah, I think uh, the youth would call it a mashup. <laughs> it's a Dickens mashup.
1: Are you a bit daunted that you might upset super fans?
3: No, uh, I, I don't do Daunted very well. Daunted's not my thing. <laughs> um, no, look, I, I bring two things, um, I think, to the project. Um, one is an irreverence. You know, I'm not a scholar by any stretch of the imagination. I left school when I was 14. i read probably more than a dozen books in my life. I have a love for Dickens characters, but not necessarily Dickens in a literary sense in that way. I'm not that smart. So with that comes a respect for him as a writer, because I think you know he's, he's clearly, Charles Dickens is more talent in his little finger than I've got in my entire body. So that brings a healthy respect for him as a as a fellow writer, but it also brings an irreverence in as much as I don't know what I'm breaking it because I don't know what it is anyway. So I'm not held back in any way. I'm not self-editing in any way. And then the respect came in as as I started writing the first few scripts is I thought you know, I don't want to piss anyone off. Maybe I should talk to the Dickensian community and maybe tell them what I'm doing. They might like it. They might they might beat me up if Dickensian community people do that. But look, when you're saying to them, we've all seen... I've seen Gillian Anderson and Helen Bonham Carter as, as Miss Aversham. I've seen the mad bird in the wedding dress a lot on telly and in film. I get it. I enjoy it. She sets fire to herself at the end. Happy days. I'm not sure I want to watch it again. But what nobody's seen before is how did Miss Havisham get to be like that? How did she get to be mad woman in wedding dress? What happened to her up to her wedding day? I think that's quite interesting.
1: Danny Cohen commissioned it originally, didn't he? Yeah. Was it a bit of a risk, do you think, at that time?
3: Um, look, I first talked to Polly Hill about it. Polly Hill, uh, she's now controller of drama, but she was um, head of drama for Independence. And I talked to her about it, not expecting to be, for it to be a BBC show. And I told her about it. I said, but obviously it's not for you because it's, it's like, madly ambitious.
1: Who, who did you originally think it was going to be for? Well, I don't know.
3: I thought I was going to go to HBO or, you know, somebody with squillions of pounds that could help me create this this monster. And Polly said to me at the time, and Danny said it afterwards, this is exactly the kind of show that, that the BBC should be doing, something that's, that's an original creative vision that a writer is passionate about that is daring and and exciting and new and fresh and something no one's ever done before that's exactly what the BBC should be doing so was it a risk I'm, uh, I don't know I don't know I don't know how Dickens could put the BBC at risk
1: and what about on the finance side uh, you said it was going to be expensive to make you're being quite honest about that how have you pulled together the patchwork of financing for this
3: well everything's kind of in context in my head I knew that in order to, to do the show that I wanted to do I'd have to build the world. I never thought for a second I was gonna be able to find a location that would give me everything that I needed. I needed to recreate Victorian London that included all the things and all the all the places and all the characters from Dickens' imagination. And that's pretty cool. I don't know any location manager um, not on drugs that could find that. So I said, we need to build it. We need to build it. I need to build the world. And if I build the world, I don't have to worry about night shoots because I could just turn the light off if I, if I build the world in, inside. I can control it. I can control. I can have fog, snow, mist. Because Dickens used those, the elements as characters, essentially in his work. Obviously, I thought that that would cost fifty million pounds to build that. Basically, I'm talking about nobody's built the set that we've built. Nobody's built a set like that for UK television ever. Nobody. It's a film set. It's like Harry Potter World in Greenford. It's amazing, uh, but it didn't cost fifty million. <laughs> I had to make some concessions. I wanted the River Thames inside. <laughs> with boats on it. We haven't got that. We've got to CGI there. So look, we've cut our cloth. So I think at the moment, the BBC are paying less tariff than they're paying for some of my other shows that I do with the BBC One. They've got a really good deal. And the slack has been taken up by BBC Worldwide. Obviously, I have a creative partnership with BBC Worldwide. And what I love about that is Red Planet is one of the uh, last true independents in the UK. In as much as, you know, I have no major investors, I have no bosses, I have no, we're not part of anybody and um, we're truly independent. To have um, a distributor that will invest up front to help us make that show so that we haven't got other voices pulling in different directions and then to get their money back when we finished, I think was a really cool thing to do.
1: Do you think they're the only broadcaster slash distributor in the UK that can support a drama like this in, in the way that you're describing? And if so, do you think that will come under threat during Charter and Ill if there's a genuine chance that the BBC might have its legs cut off
3: there's two parts to that question the first part is uh answer to the first part is no they're not the only broadcaster that does that <laughs> um we're doing a show um, which we're shooting in Cape Town called Hooten and the Lady for Sky and that's fully funded by Sky paying a decent tariff and Sky Vision who are doing exactly the same model so that again I have one broadcaster to deal with and it's a cool thing, as I say, because we are a small independent production company and it's easy to get swallowed up by HBO. You know, it's kind of... It's tough to, to stay on your two feet. Do I think that they... Look, the, the whole charter renewal of the BBC, Whittingdale is clearly... It's clearly... So I'm looking at DC's going, please don't say it. It's clearly... It's not right in the head. There's something wrong with the man, for fuck's sake. You do... I pay... I pay... I pay for Sky I pay for Sky, all right? and I don't know. I pay thirty pounds a month to watch a footy like everyone else. I've got ten pounds a month subscription with Box Nation in case the Harrison ever comes back. I don't know. <laughs> I must pay I pay I've got Netflix and I've got Love Hill or whatever. And to say that the BBC, um, you know, shouldn't you know, you shouldn't have the licence fee of like, in twelve pounds a month. And it's you know, it's not that's not BBC one, that's the whole of the BBC. What really? For twelve pounds a month, and you think that's a bad idea? like for, uh, anyway so yeah it's clearly something wrong with It's probably something no? i've got, I got the, all these images in my head and can't <laughs> say any of them because um, the lovely christine and dunney's looking at me and saying don't <laughs> say that stuff um so uh look the BBC are really they've they're really brave i remember trying to sell life on mars um and we tried seven years to get um life on mars off and there were a couple of commercial stations um, and i was like oh it's a bit whiskey Life. it could be a bit silly couldn't it it could be a bit silly flares and all that it could be a bit like Saturday Night Fever oh I'm really not sure I who was brave enough to make it BBC One I remember doing Hustle with them and saying look I can't the only way I can make this show work is if I freeze the action at certain points and I have the actors explain the plot to the audience because <laughs> it's kind of complicated and we moved that fourth wall completely and I couldn't have had that You know, I had that conversation it was BBC One and I went yeah do you know what it's your vision go for it and they're doing it again with Dickensian that's the beauty of, of them they have no you know, they don't have those commercial considerations sometimes so they can just take that that leap of faith um, so yeah you know, I'll repeat I think BBC One have been amazing throughout the whole process
1: and you're doing half an hour episodes which is quite unusual for drama outside of the soap operas isn't it
3: yes unusual but I love it you know, um, and I think that I want to get out of this um, you know, and I've done it and I'll do it again but I want to get out of this. everything's got to be 6 by 60 It's kind of, can you do six? Well, yeah, I can do six, but (laughs) I'd like to do ten, or four, (laughs) or could I do three, or could I do 13? It's about what serves the project best. You can't take a a transmission window and always uh, bend the creative to fit it. It doesn't work like that. You know, that's why some things are better as 290s. You know, some things genuinely are. And some things are best as 660s with Dickensian and again this is about you know having a broadcaster with the ability to to help you hold on to your creative vision Dickens wrote serially that's just how he wrote now you can like that or not like it but that's how he did it he had a publication called all the year round he wrote episodes of his of his stories and cliff he had a cliffhanger <laughs> to make you buy the next copy and he's he him and Wilkie Collins their motto was make them laugh make them cry make them wait all right that's the way he wrote so the only way i could do this the only way was as 20 half hours and the only way i was never going to do it was as 660s on a sunday evening because that's not what i'm doing i think it's he bent television i think it's the biggest boldest show i've ever done because it's a creative ambition and a creative vision in its purest form
1: are you going to have, have you kept the infrastructure there the, the set and i presume the ambition is to carry on doing it if it's successful
3: I would love to keep the set up. The set is constructed of 27 two-storey buildings, cobbled streets, lighting, horses and real horses and garages going round round and round in circles, a pub, Satis House, law courts. It's huge. I would love to leave it up in case we want to go again because I think this is a show that can run and run. But the BBC have quite rightly pointed out that it's not their place to pay my rent. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> while I'm waiting to see if I'm recommissioned. <laughs> so, uh, and they are quite rightly guarding the license fee. And so no, I'm gonna st- I got to strike it when we finish.
1: Has there ever been a better time to work in drama?
3: No, not for me, I'm having a ball, you know? <laughs> I think that, um, you know, we're shooting Dickensian at the minute. We wrapped Death in Paradise on Friday. We're gearing up to um, shoot Hoon and Lady in South Africa for Sky One. Stopping the name of love, our big Motown musical we're shooting next year. we've got another four projects that I think are going to go in the next three months. We've just started our factual with Simon Rakes joining us on Channel 5. We're buzzing, man. You know, it's like, (laughs) wow, it's all going on. And uh, so Red Planet's probably the most exciting time in my time in television.
1: Given the company's getting bigger, does that mean you've got less time to focus on some of your passion pieces or is it all just... Passion?
3: No, 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 I'm Pac-Man. I am. Pac-Man, right. <laughs> we got, we got thing it's, um, I mean, look, it's not just my stuff. People make, people. There's lots of myths about Red Planet, right? The, the, my favourite myth is that I rewrite all the scripts, right? That's my thing. Yeah, you know, two writers go Red Planet, Tony, well, basically, Tony <laughs> rewrite all the scripts. Yeah, I wish, um, which I, I a I find really offensive. I spent most of my career. Um, Screwing about writers and producers, pissing all over write scripts and having them rewritten and giving shit notes. So I'm not going to be that kind of producer, all right? So I protect my writers and I look after my writers. And uh, writers want to come and work with uh, with Red Planet. That's why I'm working with people like Sam Ashdown and Sarah Phelps and Kate Brooks. And you know, they don't. There's not. That's not a mistake. And then the second myth is that it only does my shows. Oh, that's nonsense. That's clearly not true, because our output would never cope with that. I write exclusively for Red Planet because I own Red Planet and I'm not stupid. So why would I be writing for someone else? (laughs) (laughs) That makes no commercial sense. But we only do things that we're really excited about. So, you know, I'm talking about Dickensian because it's my show and I'm talking about Stopping the Name loud because it's my show and I'm excited about it. Um, But, you know, we've also got But Hood and Ladies on my show that's co-created. On our development slate at the moment, I'd say 15% of it is mine and 85% is other writers. So. I am extremely passionate about the stuff that I'm doing for me, but I'm, I'm equally passionate about shows that we're doing with other writers. And the good thing about those shows is I'm not fucking writing. It's cool. <laughs> but what I get to do is I get to bring my clout, my passion, my experience with those other writers. You know, uh, Death in Paradise was created by Robert Thorogood, who'd never written for television before. So what I did was I said, "Oh, it's cool. It's so, okay, it's fine, it's cool. This is how we do it. And that's what you can do with good writers. You can give them great steers and say, don't do it like that, because that will be shit. Let's do it like this. All oh, right, okay, so let's do that. And now, you know, and he's flied. And the more that Red Planet can bring on that talent, that's why we do the Red Planet Prize, to find that, those, those new writers, to find that new talent and keep us out of the gene pool that we all can use, where there's, you know, there's six old farts, all swimming about in this same writer's gene Paul. <laughs> you know, it's like and I included myself in that, you know, it's like Tony Freight no, he's not, Paul Abbott no, he's not free. what well, Jimmy's not free. And you know, we're all trying to do it. We need to have some fresh voices. So um, so Red Planet's about that as well. It's about finding people, not only as writers, but you know, our our head of production and business was a production coordinator when he started. Uh, Tim Q's executive producer of Deathly Paradise. You know, started as a producer, we just kind of, everybody's growing within the company, me included, because I'm having to learn how to run an indie, which is scary at the best of times, even for people who know what they're doing. Uh, there's no way that we're going to run out of steam or anytime quick. Um, good times. Because, yeah, we're having a good time, we're having a ball.
1: Up next, we fling open the doors to Dave's hit factual series, Storage Hunters. Shipped to the UK from America by North One, the T Group format has just returned for its fifth series on UK TV's channel. Travelling the country with a colourful cast of junk journeymen is host Sean Kelly, who auctions off the contents of disregarded storage units. Mr. Kelly and Storage Hunters series producer Sean Doherty will be with us shortly to unlock the show's secrets. But first, a clip. Here, Sean opens a storage unit in Somerset, revealing some underwhelming carpet cutoffs.
5: All right, not the best looking bin. If anybody's not interested in this and want to move on to the next unit, go ahead, find Whoever wants to buy it, stick around. I'll give you two minutes
2: and we'll sell it. Let's go. What do you reckon? This is a bin there for budget and Leggett. Bit of a mishmash here, isn't it? Offcuts and remnants and arcade
0: flooring. I don't see
2: anything in this bin other than 100 quid, no more. Nice bit of
3: underlay, tiles, mean... laminate flooring, easy sell. What's that in there you got? You got about 23 square meters of laminate flooring. Back to a kitchen.
4: It's there right in front of you. What are you are getting? There's nothing to look
3: through. What's there is There. What's that? Carpets.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, so Sean and Sean, welcome. Um, so Sean, the producer, you uh, have you uh, wrapped and delivered.
5: He's the one with the, the funny. He's the one <laughs> with the funny accent. You're the one with the. American. He's the one with yeah. the funny accent. So you'll be able to tell which one's which.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah. We're pretty distinct in our in how we speak. Yes, we have just delivered all the final ten. So yeah, we are good to go on series five.
1: Talk us through that process is it how long has that taken when did you start filming and how long does the edit take?
2: It's normally about a four to five month process from start to finish because obviously finding locations, casting, putting the team together there's about 25 of us that go on the road and then with the background and the bidders you're looking at another 20 people on camera so just the logistics of that is is you know there's a lot of organisation involved so. Yes. And
1: Sean, you're over here for reasonable periods of time, are
2: you? Yeah, for good chunks. Uh, I just got back two weeks ago,
5: or a week ago, I guess it was, yeah, and I'll be here probably through February, and uh, yeah, so I'm residing in the UK.
1: What have you made of the response over here because it you know it was a hit almost as soon as it
5: launched wasn't it Well you know what was great is that the American one had already kind of helped you know pave the way and give us like a good fan base so then uh, coming in and doing the the British one on top of it has been I think it, I think it was easy and hard at the same time because people had expectations of from the American one and the American cast what's the British one going to be like so we had we had something set up perfectly for us and then we had our challenges in other areas so it's been it's been good bad What were those challenges Well the challenges is that now all of a sudden you've got fresh faces new characters that the audience has to get used to and it's one thing where Brits can like look at these big stereotypical Americans like you watch an American Storage Hunters episode you see these very big stereotypical American characters and to Brits they're like yeah Those are Americans. That's how Americans act. In America, we watch uh, Storage Hunters and we go, look at these idiots, right? (laughs) But you guys, but the Brits like those big characters. But when we come to the UK and now all of a sudden we have someone from, we have a couple of people from Stoke and we've got people that from around the country and they kind of represent the area and you and P, and the Brits have to look at their own stereotypes in the face they're like what Oh, and they they're can, all some big characters and, though. And they, yeah, and the thing is it's tough it's tough to look at yourself in the mirror and that's kind of what's happening with this series is now all of a sudden it's not Americans we can laugh at it's like sometimes you're looking at your own self and it's it's a little I think it's a little tougher to digest but it's been good because uh uh, you know, we've just tried to encourage people that are really doing this for a living, and and so you know, try to bring some authenticity to it. And so, is
1: that key, Sean? That authenticity and and people who really genuinely want the contents of those boxes.
2: It is key, and that's why when we when we do cast, when we uh, we try and find these people, we go to uh, markets or antique uh, auctions. We go around the country looking for genuine traders. And they've they've all got a background in trade, and they all know what they're looking at. Some more than others. Yeah. Uh, there's one or two characters who uh, like Heavy D, for example. Where did you find Heavy D?
5: The, he is like
2: he is the brashest. He, you know, he, he sells that, you at you at could a, imagine he
5: sells at a car boot sale right outside East London, and he's out there every single Saturday. And if and everyone who goes that car boot sale knows who this guy is because he's just he's so such a big personality you know, and so when we have like our producers going out and walking around, we're not just going to auctions, but sometimes we're just looking for traders you know. And you can't go to this particular car boot and not know who Heavy D is. That so, doesn't surprise me. Yeah. To, to, so <laughs> he so he so he's like he brings like a different flavor to it for us because he's you know let me just face he's an idiot, but we love him. He's our <laughs> he's our idiot. You know what I mean? Uh, he's not the most. Knowledgeable knowledgeable guy. As a matter of fact, uh, you know, I'm not sure he finished the third grade, but I will say that he brings an energy and an excitement to the show that we enjoy. He's good television. But He's- then we have others who are experts who are, you know, and that's, and that's what you need. you need. You need a balance of people because sometimes the expert is great, but sometimes it's dry,
2: you know. But we found Heavy D uh, purely by accident. Um, we, we found a guy on Chapel Market, which was just behind North Wandsall buildings in Islington. And uh, he, he was going to be in the first episode and he turned up and he said, I've brought my friend along. Is it all right if he stands in the background? You won't notice him. <laughs> and then the very first auction we ever did uh, in Barking, um, we Sean started bid calling, saying who wants to buy this? And we just heard this boom from the, the the back of the the bidders and he wasn't mic'd up
5: and so immediately Sean and I both said okay we got to throw a mic on this guy because he was just he was outshining everyone else with his enthusiasm and that's what you're looking for in these shows you want people who will who will step up and you know not not get camera shy uh, you do have
1: to keep him under control a little and some of the rest well, of the cast I mean there's genuine you know, scraps aren't we there, honestly di- we honestly mm.
5: didn't realize what we were unleashing with this guy <laughs> You know, we should have, we should have, we should have seen it, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's he's he's a tough he's a tough one to kind of control because he's just so crazy sometimes,
2: and and that's what he's like all day. Yeah, you know, yeah that's he's authentic, just full on, full and that's on. him. That's,
5: he's
1: that's not he's not playing for the cameras. No, not at all. That's heavy D. Okay. No. So how do you identify the storage plots, and are are these units, are these bins as you call them, are they real?
2: Yes, absolutely. Really. I mean, the, the day before production goes in and just checks, you know, for compliance reasons that everything in there is, is what it should be. And you genuinely it? don't know what's in them. Sean and the bidders, we see them the day before because we have to, and we film them because, um, well, we have to go and film them because we got all the shots of the, uh, of, of what the bin looks like so that we can cut them in with the auction as it's happening. But, um, but, yeah, we don't know what yeah, they don't in, know. In America, in we we tried we tried doing because in America we made
5: 80 of these episodes, right? And so we tried making it several different ways. We tried like we we tried going and just getting stuff that was up for auction and then just auctioning that off, you know, just like that without sh- double checking anything. Uh that led to problems because there was a unit at one of the auctions that uh, hadn't gotten cleared and we sold it on TV and then there was a lawsuit. So we thought, okay, well, that's not the smartest thing. So then so then production would go in and double-check all the paperwork, cut the cut the unit open, look at it, put a fresh lock on it, and we would then we'd, we knew we were covered and we weren't going to get sued. Um, and then at one point, we thought, oh, we'll just show it to the bidders ahead of time so that they kind of know what to, to expect. And we did that, like, one or two episodes, and that was a horrible idea. So we quickly went back to them not ever knowing. Because the surprise is half the fun of it. Yeah, and it? I would say that, like, out of 80 episodes in the States, we had two episodes where we experimented with like letting them see it you know and discussing stuff ahead of time and then we quickly realized this is a horrible idea these guys should never know i don't want to know as the auctioneer i want to be surprised when the door comes up uh so so from day one here in the uk we've you know we've never once that what you see on camera where the lock gets cut and the door comes up that's them seeing it for the first time how useful was that experience when you're adapting the, the format?
2: The, what
5: to have
1: those tried and tested elements and what, to what, know what works well.
2: Well, it was it, taking the American show and then adapting it for, for Britain. There were certain key elements that we had to keep. The first one is Sean Kelly. We, ma- we had to make sure we had the face of the show, and that was Sean. The key thing in adapting it was the British sense of humour and making sure that it's funny. And the, the, the key thing that John Quinn, who's the exec, said to me was just make it funny. Plus we're on Dave, right? And yeah, I mean,
5: and that's you know what's crazy is that when I first, I don't own the rights to the show or anything like that, but I did. I was the guy that came up with the idea for the show, and I shot the original three minute video and took it to L. A. and that's what became Storage Hunters. And I'm a stand up comedian and a, and an auctioneer, and I always wanted to have a show that showcased my two things: think me loving to make people laugh. And being an auctioneer and being good at it. And that was the whole idea. That's why I created the show. And to see it like where it comes to the UK and they get it and they're like, let's keep it funny. That, that was the most important thing to me. Let's be silly. Let's have some fun. You know, at the, at the end of the day, you know, it's, it should be entertainment. I mean, we want people sitting on the couch. Maybe, maybe these are people who are you know, aspire to be entrepreneurs or whatever. But we'd like people to get a good laugh, you know. And, and, so are there things
1: that you do to tease out those laughs? Absolutely. What works?
2: Well, I mean, the, the, the key thing about getting making it funny is casting and making sure that you have characters who are standalone funny. So, Nat and John are, they could be in pantomime next week because John's full of double entendres and Nat's looks, uh, you know, they could stop a bullet 50 yards um Linda is laugh out loud the, the the some of the expressions Linda comes out with um Dave's using Linda at the moment as a as a trail for the new series because I, I
5: thought when I first met Linda I thought she was an actress because I just thought I thought okay well no one's really this dumb you know like this is this is an act right this is no one no one's really l- l- like this but, as I got to know Linda like she's not an actress she she buys and sells at auctions she 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 has special circumstances financially that allow her to not have to sell anything if she doesn't want to. And she is just a spacey blonde, and she's she's a sweetheart. She has a big heart. She's a lovely, lovely woman. But she says some of the most idiotic stuff, and it's just it's comedy magic.
1: But you want a bit of that. You want the expertise and,
5: and the laughs, don't you? I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And so you have to. It's it's fun. It's funny. The whole show is. It's a balance. Like it can't just all be silly fun and laughs and it can't all be it can't you know it can't all be like big heavy d moments but you know as long as we try to keep a mix and a balance in there so that you know the viewers get a little bit of everything and how symbolic is that 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 bolt cutting moment uh, because and every box
1: you see it don't you is that something you quite conscious of
2: well there there are key format points throughout throughout the show i mean uh we have five auctions per show uh it starts with sean calling everybody in and then the ball cutting, and these moments are spikes. There are, as a 22-and-a-half-minute show, you've got five auctions, it ends up being with uh, opening titles and pre-titles, it ends up being about four minutes for each auction, four-and-a-half minutes, and you, you're you looking at 45 seconds per segment, and each one is a spike in, in the in the audience's interest, from the ball cutting to revealing what's in, inside the bin, to who wants it, and then the auction itself, and that can end up in fistfights or or comedy laughter. And then the key thing—it's all about gambling. Have they won or have they lost?
5: Because you do
1: a little bit of follow-up, don't you, in terms of you know seeing how well things might sell. In some episodes I've seen, you actually see them getting stuff valued properly, don't you?
2: Yes, we have explorations and, and valuations. Um, and again, we follow we follow to see if, if if they've really made any any big profit or not what's
1: what's the the worst bin you've seen and and the the the, the most shocking bid mm,
5: yeah I mean, unfortunately the the worst ones that i've seen have actually not been during the show you know like i just did a storage auction in california 3 weeks ago and i did 120 units in one day on the show we show 5 uh when uh when we're not making a show and we don't have to go in and film everything and i'm just selling units i cut the lock I let people look for about thirty seconds, and I sell it. And so I did a hundred. I did a hundred and twenty bins in just under three hours, and just cranked them out. And it's those days. Hard work. I yeah, and it's those days where you where you open the door and you go. Oh my Lord, what is this? And you find crime scenes and you find, like I have a guy in California, his attorney just contacted me from an auction that I did last April where he apparently he had found several kilos of uh, of cocaine inside the unit, and but he, he didn't do the right thing. What he should have done was he should have contacted the, you know, he should have contacted the officials right away and said, hey, I found all this cocaine and the DEA would have came in and confiscated it and it wouldn't have been a problem he said that he didn't realize the cocaine was in there and he loaded it into his truck and then he took it home and it's been sitting in his house for the last... Well, apparently he was out trying to find a buyer because he's not really a cocaine dealer. So now he's facing 10 years in prison. So it's like... You don't have that problem here in the UK, I take it. uh, (laughs) Not that Given that you're vetting boxes.
2: Not that we've been able to broadcast. But uh, we do have one in the next episode where uh, we auction off some portaloos and they haven't been cleaned. (laughs) and that that was a pretty that was a pretty messy affair
1: wow and you you've got an extraordinary voice that you do Jordan, What's that? When you're, when, you're, when you're doing your auction. Oh, the bid calling. Yeah. yeah. Can you yeah. give us a blast?
5: Here we go. I'm sorry, man. I'm 25 pounds. I'm 25. <laughs> I'm at 100 pounds. To to 200 pounds. 500 pounds. That's a monkey. All
2: in fair warrant. Sold your way for 500 pounds. Next unit. We've made 51 episodes so far in two years. And in that time, I still can't understand what <laughs> uh, and that, you say. Know, and I think that's kind of a cool point, which is 51 episodes in under
5: two years is a testament to a couple of things. Uh, one, to, to the format, Right too, I think, to, uh, to the fact that our series producer, you know, getting in there and putting 51 of these together, I think anyone that works in the industry realizes that's no small feat, you know? A, a really bit of praise I like it. Um, yeah, thank you, Sean. Uh, what, what's yeah. next, then?
2: Well, so far we've done uh, 51 episodes, uh, 50 of the normal, and then we did one uh, one-off celebrity special at Christmas, which was um, Dave's most-watched show last year. Uh, so we're hoping that that will, that will return in the future, and we just love making... The series, don't we? So it's fun. We just wanted to to keep going.
5: You know, we've we've talked n- numerous times about this format because Sean was talking about how it has all those spikes, and because he and I have both created formats in the past for other shows, and we thought about th- this format, the way it's so engaging and it holds the viewers, you know, attention. It's really what you want in a format because every seven seconds something different's happening. You know, and in today's world when you're watching, you know, non-scripted television, the shows that are kind of holding the younger audience's attention because everyone's got ADD because they have their smartphones and they're constantly entertained with, you know, all these little short video clips is that when you're watching uh, non-scripted, a lot of times um, the cameras go back and forth with, you know, you can count like one second, two second, three second, and you just keep seeing the camera switch. So not only do we have that incorporated in, but then we also have something completely different happening like every seven seconds and i think that it, i think that that is kind of what in today's world is what's kind of still kind of holding that viewer's attention uh and it's it, that's what makes it a good format right.
2: from my point of view the hardest part is getting it down to 22 and a half minutes because there is <laughs> so much content in, in one
5: episode it's so 12 hard. to 14 hour day that we work into 22 minutes yeah,
2: yeah we end up with about 15 hours of rushes but that isn't the, that isn't the real problem. The real problem is that everyone is mic'd. So you times that by eight people, or well, nine with Sean's. Would you off. prefer it to
1: be a bit longer, maybe?
2: The celebrity series was one hour, uh, and that was it, it. had the same pace. We had one more auction, but it had the same pace to it. And it, it could str- It could easily make a, a one hour a one hour show. But it's beautiful the way it is. <laughs>
1: Now, while the parents are away, a Channel 4 series captured the kids coming out to play. Yes, Secret Life of four, five and six-year-olds rigs a nursery with cameras and snoops on the social behaviour of three groups of children. The results of RDF's experiment, which started life as a pilot last year, are frequently enlightening, charming and funny. Executive producer Teresa Watkins will join us in a moment to discuss the six-part show. But first, a clip. Here, four year olds Lola, Tia, and new girl Zoe are competing to create the best cake.
4: I'm making a cake for my best
2: friend Lola. I'm gonna make a cake for my best friend Lola. I'm gonna make a cake for you then. What? For you? I'm not. Well, fine, I'm making still cake for Lola. I'm gonna put some strawberry on it. I'm putting lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fruit on Zoe's. I'm going to make a little happy face on hers. I'm making butter cake for not you for you, Layla. Ah? Uh, that's nice of you. Well, you're just a whole bunch of friends.
1: welcome to Risa. Oh, thank thanks, thanks for coming in. Uh, you're in, in the edit at the moment, is that right? You're, you're still finishing off the series?
0: We're in the edit and up to our eyes, we've got seven shows all in different suites, so slightly frazzled at the moment.
1: Is it quite an intensive edit?
0: Well, it's been incredibly intensive because the trouble with working with children is you can only work in their school holidays. So we worked the whole of the summer holidays, but then Channel 4 said, well, we want this We want this series on air before Christmas. And we said, well, you can't have that. It's seriously, you can only have it in January. And they said, sorry, no can do. We've got to have it before Christmas. So, yes, we're trying to do them all at once.
1: So how have you resolved that then in in terms of the the strain on your resources and uh, time issues?
0: Well, it's been a bit of an issue. But just by having the most amazing team of editors who are all self-starters, amazing edit producers and a series producer and a series director, Nick Brown and Emily uh, Lawson, who are just fantastic and who are across the whole edit it so um, we're juggling
1: okay Uh, it feels like a good decision though because it's consolidating up to 3.2 million viewers isn't it
0: oh we've been absolutely bowled over by the figures i mean the pilot was a surprise hit for channel four but i had no confidence that the series would necessarily do the same business so it's absolutely thrilling that it's doing so well yeah
1: so take us back to the beginning how did you how did you come up with the show
0: well, it's a it's quite a long time ago. Um I was horrified when I was thinking on the train coming here that it actually started back in 2012 and a colleague and I were really fascinated by the kind of tests that were done on children in the 60s and 70s, they were done a lot, to predict how children would turn out in future life. And one of the most famous that I think everybody's heard about is this marshmallow test. It's a test of delayed gratification. So if I was in a white coat and dressed like a scientist and I said, listen, you can have one marshmallow now or you can have two if you can hold off and wait for 10 minutes, that test was done on countless children and it was found to be a better predictor of those children's outcomes, like their salary, their um, academic performance, how they would perform in life, than any intelligence so test. So it
1: started with science?
0: Completely started with the science. Then we realized you can't actually make a program that predicts how children are going to turn out because what if you have somebody and you think, yes, definitely a psychopath, definitely a criminal in the making? <laughs> so, so we reined that back. And then um, what we found was a real life model for the series in America, attached to Stanford University, actually. They have this nursery where all the professors would send their children, and it's surrounded by games rooms where they do these so called games that are actually little tests. And there are two way and they observe them. So that once we found that, we went and filmed there, um, Channel 4 got really interested and they said, actually, this is potentially a series in the making. The challenge was that everybody said to us at the beginning, you can't make primetime entertain- uh, uh, television out of children of this age. It just won't translate. It won't be funny. So we had to keep the faith through some difficult, stormy times at the beginning. And there were a lot of naysayers, including at Channel 4. Not, I must say, my our commissioner, Sarah Ramson, who's always had faith, but um, other people higher up in Channel 4 had their doubts about it
1: so how did you go from that to so we were giving out your environment and yeah, you know,
0: we were given a tiny amount of money and I said what can we do with this because really we wanted to rig it and as everybody knows you can't do a rig on a um, small amount of money but I said look I tell you what let's make a radio program But with pictures, we'll just put in a few uh, cameras, uh, manually held cameras, but we'll basically mic up every child. We'll find 10 children, we'll find a nursery, we'll set it up for two days, one weekend. And so I sat on a couple of tiny chairs with the scientists behind a kind of curtain while these 10 children met for the first time one weekend. And this was back in October 2012 or 13, I think. And within about 10 minutes, two of the boys were facing off like stags, head to head. And the whole nursery went quiet. And it was spine tingling. Me and the scientists were just sitting there thinking, what's going on? Everything went quiet. And then all the children went out into the playground. And again, within about 20 minutes, they'd all ranked themselves against this one child who they were accusing of being a bully boy. And so it played out and you just thought, wow, the whole lore of the playground is laid bare. And what excited us was that it wasn't a million miles from what we see at work, what you see on the bus, what you see in the boardroom. In other words, it kind of reminded us of ourselves and that felt very exciting.
1: It's interesting you say about the, the sort of radio thing, because one of the things I wanted to ask you is that, it, you know, Keeping track of the sound and making sure you're across that and doing the right thing. That must be quite technically challenging on this series because I'd imagine they're trying to take their mics off all the time. And, uh, you know, obviously you've got some subtitles there helping you know the viewer with the communication.
0: Well, you said it. Um, the sound for me is the biggest technical challenge. Uh, If you get that wrong, you lose everything. Because um, I don't know if you remember the standout line from the pilot that was much repeated on Twitter was, stop ringing me, Richard, you're not the dad. Now, we didn't even hear that at the time we discovered that in the edit because we didn't have the luxury of listeners which you'd have on a normal rig program so capturing every child's every conversation every whisper every gasp was crucial to this program but i have to say as rigs go it isn't one of the more complicated because if you think about it you've got 10 or 12 children they keep that same mic for the whole week. So unlike, say, educating, where they're swapping mics and they're changing the children that they're focusing on every day, by contrast, this was a piece of cake. But I can tell you, it did not feel like that at the it time. It doesn't look like it. Oh, well, that's good to hear.
1: <laughs> and what about the casting? That's obviously critical to this this being a success, isn't it?
0: Do you know what? I actually think it's the single most important thing about the show, without good casting, we have no show. So our the first hirings I made were our so-called family producers. They're actually senior uh, casting producers, Amy Willits and Karen Brown. And they are maestros at this. And what we would do, we, we've sent a shout out far and wide, but what we would do is hold what we called audition parties. And we'd literally invite ten children who interested in us for some reason, to a party at our offices. And we'd play games like, what's the time, Mr. Wolf. Or pass the parcel but we'd also have stations around the room where they would be doing drawing or playing with small toys or dressing up and then we'd also interview them and at the end it was proper consensus politics because there'd be about eight of us including runners and the family producers and the pd and the director and um, we'd all sit around a table and we'd literally ask the question who do you remember Alfie. Do you remember Alfie? And if he got eight votes, he was in. I mean, then there was a small matter of taking them to Channel 4 and making a casting tape. But basically... Very democratic. (laughs) It was terribly democratic. I can tell you, it didn't necessarily carry on like that, but the casting process... Because what you're looking for is children who engage you. And it's not the obvious children, necessarily. Like, you don't want all the extroverts. There was one child, Elliot, who just had this extraordinary engagement and quality of attention. And everyone on every station said yeah I want Elliot I want Elliot because he was so focused so um, and in the end what you want in the play centre is a range you don't want just all outgoing characters because in the end from the pilot quite a few people's favourite character was Jessica and she was the one who kind of pursued Skylar and Skylar rejected her and rebuffed her and I think I think the audience related to Jessica more than to Skylar, although people loved Skylar. Um, but I think, you know, if you see a need in someone, that's very relatable for adults.
1: And in terms of securing consent, was that ever a challenge?
0: Oh, my God. <laughs> was it ever a challenge? It is just Unbelievable how thorough we have to be. By the time those families, those parents signed their child up, we had tried every way to basically talk them out of doing it. And we had to give them. All the possible outcomes. At every turn we were talking our parents through the pitfalls, supposing their child does something that would really upset them or that they don't like, supposing they're mean to another child or bullying because we always were very clear that we want to show exactly what happens in the nursery. We're not claiming that we can tell the story of those children but we can tell the story of what happens in that room.
1: Do you show them footage before it goes out?
0: Well, we were so helped this time by having the pilot so they all could see the kind of, A, the way that we wanted to show their children and that it was responsible and that it had science supporting it, but also they could see that there was, you know, good behaviour, bad behaviour, people being tired, crying, there was even a slap round the face. But what we ensure is that we never say there is one moment when people sign a document. It's what we call ongoing consent and it's more of a conversation. Okay, It goes on throughout. And
1: just finally, I mean, talk us through the fact that you've now developed it beyond the four-year-olds and um, talk about some of the progress you're making internationally as well
0: well the big change for us with the series was that suddenly we were asked to work not just with four-year-olds but with five-year-olds and six-year-olds and it was quite a demanding order two programs on fours two fives two sixes and a reunion show um, particularly in the time frame and I was a bit reluctant because I wanted to get a group of five-year-olds and do what we did before and maybe make three eps but We had this great big order to make and actually it was... Fascinating. When you separate four year olds, five year olds, and six year olds, you see the leaps of development they make between those two years. Such that when the six year olds came for their first week, we were all hit between the eyes and they looked like teenagers to us. They looked so huge and actually slightly terrifying because they came in with all this swagger and attitude. They were talking about terrorist attacks and the news. They knew all the words of Taylor Swift songs. I mean, it was, they were like adolescents. They were playing Kiss Chase. They were blue in the face. I mean, it was scary. They were scarily grown up. And we kind of felt, oh, my God, we don't have the tasks for them to do. But actually, it drew the best out of us because we had to think on our feet. And it was very exciting. And you ask about the international sales. It's been an idea that seems to connect internationally and it's travelled already to Scandinavia, to Denmark, we're talking to Sweden about it at the moment, to Belgium, they're making it in France, we're in talks with Italy and Spain and we're talking to America at the moment as well. So I think because of the fact that it connects up with ourselves as adults, you don't just think, oh, how sweet, these are children. You think, oh, this is how we became the way we are I'm that child, or I'm that child. We all play that game all the time. It's universal. That's me. (laughs) I think so. I, I mean, it's a hard show to make, and to be honest, we're all surprised at how well it's doing. But I think that's the connection it makes.
1: And that's it for this second of two specials from the Talking TV archives. Thanks to Nicola Lloyd, Tony Jordan, Sean Kelly, Sean Doherty, and Teresa Watkins. The team will be back in two weeks with new insights, gossip and analysis from the TV industry. My name is Jake Cantor. The producer is Matt Hill. Goodbye.
0: You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios.